This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast, Talking Television, and we're visiting Paul Clark today out at Blink TV in a wonderful part of Sydney too, I must say. Not sure if we've spoken to Paul on a podcast before as Blink TV, but I think we had you in once when we talked about maybe Whitlam, and it was, was that a Bambora product? Bambora. Bambora. So just tell us a little bit how you set up the different brands. What what does it represent? Well, uh, Bombora is a film company. So it's made for big headland television and film. So we've done things like uh, Bombora, The History of Surfing, Wide Open Road, which was the car series, uh, Whitlam, The Power and the Passion, Brilliant Creatures. They were all really big kind of uh, documentaries. At the moment, we've got some dramas going through there, one called Boxing Day, which is a story of Jack Johnson uh, and him winning the um, first black person to win the world heavyweight title uh, in Australia, which was a weird thing. Uh, Blink, on the other hand, is entertainment. And so my background was I, I was an EP at um, the ABC and I initiated programs like Recovery, Long Way to the Top, Lovers in the Air, Spicks and Specs. So I've got a bit of entertainment and a bit of factual, and it's sort of where factual meets entertainment is where my career's been. Blink is mainly entertainment, and Bombora's factual. I guess, well, I, I want to get back to some of that other stuff because it's really interesting, but I guess the main reason we're probably out here today is because of Blink and Eurovision, the impending um, 2016 episode. Now, we're not far away. Mm. Um, Stockholm's the destination. Have you been there much this year so far? Yeah, I went to Stockholm uh, earlier last month for the head of delegation uh, meeting and, and so all the countries turn up and and um, look at what the venue's going to be like. It's an incredible venue. It's it's basically an egg in the middle of the Stockholm suburbs. So it's got this huge roof space that's all going to be lit. It's going to feel like the Hunger Games. <laughs> uh, it is so. There's not that much space in front. It's no bigger than the entertainment centre, but right. it just goes high. So and they've built this. Industri- it looks like an 80s industrial disco. Um, kind of, it's just got this enormous kind of rectangular stage that sort of uh, can be lit from any, any end. So it's going to look like one of those SPK videos from the 80s. It's going it's to be very, very bright and hard. So we've gone very futuristic with Dami. We're kind of going Blade Runner in a big way. <laughs> Is there multiple levels in this space, yes. or is it like a void? Or it's well, so the the area goes right up to the sort of top of this egg, mm. uh, which they'll light in different colours, and I'm sure they'll be able to utilise really well with with kind of, with the kind of cameras that they use for things like um, the proms in the UK, where you just have these mm-hmm. 50, 80 metre kind of falling cameras. So it will look incredible. That and the the, the Swedes. Absolutely eat Eurovision for breakfast. Like <laughs> that, they have a competition that I'm really interested in called Melody Festival, and and Julia Zamiro put me onto this. And what they do is they choose their singer for the year by visiting all the different provinces of Sweden, and over six weeks they choose who their representative is going to be. So we arrived to Stockholm just as they were picking this person, and they went with this young guy called Franz, who's about seventeen. But there were 40,000 people in the room. And it, it felt like the school spectacular 
on growth, human growth hormone. You know, it, it just had this incredible power, like it meant so much to the Swedes who was going to represent them, and it got a 90% share. Wow. So they really take it seriously. Yeah. I'm getting a bit of vertigo already thinking about it because... <laughs> it is that. It is vertiginous. <laughs> yeah, because I, I remember, I think it was last year, they, they love the moving camera, don't they? Yeah, they and do. they love the big spaces and they zoom in and out and it's it's quite exciting for the viewer. Oh, absolutely. And, and we're from a English or American kind of style of doing television. So it kind of originated with Ready, Steady, Go with those fixed ped cameras and we sort of cut from one side to the other, whereas they don't think, why, why, why would you cut when, you, when you've got a steady cam? And the first time uh, we went, uh, Julia and Sam and I went to Eurovision was in uh, Moscow in 2009, and it was this huge theatre, the Olympiski Theatre. And as I walked onto the floor, there was a wrestling ring above us, <laughs> a Perspex wrestling ring, and someone pushed, a Russian soldier pushed me out of the way so that... Um, a Segway, one of those Segways, went past me in the uh, aisle and it had a Steadicam operator on the back of it. So it was travelling at about 25 kilometres and then as it hit the stage, the guy jumped off and started running around the performer. And I just thought, well, in Australian industrial health and safety wouldn't allow for that. But I, <laughs> I wouldn't believe that you could do that. But I've seen it now. <laughs> Um, so just recap, share. so what's your history with Eurovision? When did you first get involved? Well, when Terry Wogan uh, passed on the, the baton in 2009, I had a discussion with SBS about how best to cover Eurovision. And uh, we came to the view that we would take Sam and Julia uh, and I went with them as a commentator, producer, basically mm -hmm. to look after the commentary. And when we got there, they were fascinated that there were Australians there and that we were putting cameras up in the booth. They found and this out was the first year Aussies that, was that the had first, a present. That's right. So SBS had covered it for 30 years yep. before that, or since I think the mid-80s, 83, mm -hmm. 84. Uh, and, but that was the first year that we'd actually had a commentator or two commentators there. The fact that we used cameras and we did a whole lot of backstage interviews. And Julia particularly was brilliant with the performance. Like, she just go shoulder to shoulder um, and talk to them. And she's the best improvised talent I've ever seen. And Sam would work something that was completely different. He'd <laughs> work a series of ridiculous questions. Yeah, and they really responded to both approaches. Uh -huh. So after, in 2011, two years later, they, they acknowledged the fact there were Australians there in the show. And then in 2013, they asked me to direct something about why Australia loves Eurovision. Okay. And then the next year, Denmark invited Jessica to perform. And they said, I remember the meeting uh, that we had and they said, we don't want you just to sing a song. We want you to do something really fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> so challenge us, you know. Like, yeah. but, so, and then uh, on the occasion last year of their 60th anniversary, they invited us formally to participate. So Guy... We chose Guy Sebastian, and, and he really, um, he made, uh, oh, he basically made Australians proud, you know. Like, mm. initially, when he was announced, there were a few naysayers, and Guy said, I oh, don't worry about it, Paul, haters are going to hate. Mm. Taylor Swift said that, and it's true. And mm. by the end of it, like, he was just such a great representative that the whole country was behind him. Um, so this year, when we sent the pictures over of Dami, 
they were just astounded. They just went, wow, she's mm. fantastic. You know, mm. we're really looking forward to working with her. Yeah. Just as an aside, you mentioned Terry Wogan. A little bit of criticism I noticed this week, and I'm not sure if it was taken out of context, but one of the, I think one of the producers saying, look, yeah, Terry sort of lampooned us a bit, sent us up a bit. Um, what's your feeling on that? I think Eurovision's made for parody, mm. and I think that the great thing about it is that you can watch it on a variety of levels. And I think the, the gay community really celebrated Eurovision in Australia. It, it was initially something that diasporas of migrants watched. Uh, my family's from Ireland. Mm-hmm. We'd watch every year. And uh, same for Julia. You know, she watched uh, for France. But I think it was the gay community that really found the kitsch value and, mm. and its uniqueness. They championed that as something that was quite special. And I think that with a lot of things that the gay community find, they bring it from the fringe and they bring it right in to be famous. And so there's there's this sense that now Eurovision for an Australian audience is a tent peg in the entertainment year. And it feels... I, I, I'm really encouraged to see teenagers and families, actually. Yeah. The... the the numbers on Eurovision, the the actual stats that we get back, are such a beautiful set of numbers. You know, it's it's perfectly male female uh, balanced and age balanced. You know, it's it, its audience is fifty percent under thirty and over thirty. Mm. So you just couldn't get a better set of figures. It's just a shame that Channel Seven uh, played the Ivan Milat series against us. It's a perfect platform for SBS, I guess, to push out its, oh, its programming to, to, yeah. to other audiences. And, and yeah, I, I guess on that, um, there's something for everybody in it, isn't there? Yeah. If you want to really get serious and be a Eurovision nerd, you can do that. But if you want to have a laugh and don't take it seriously, that works on that level as well. That's right. A key change, you have to drink another amaretto. <laughs> Someone's in white, drink again. Right. You know, like the, the parties, I think, are, are the core of it. And that's quite... Uh, I. I find that such um, uh, uh, an exciting and thrilling thing that people are, are engaging at that level. We've always said that we celebrated Eurovision with fun. Mm. To get back to your original question, it was Krista Bjorkman, who is the uh, Simon Cowell of Sweden, okay. who's yes. the producer. He was in London last week and he said, well, Terry Wogan kind of wrecked Eurovision by being so cynical. and. There's a few cultural things at play. I mean, no one... Uh, Britain uh, invented pop music in many ways um, for themselves. Mm. They reinvented it in the 60s and people like Dusty Springfield and the Beatles, uh, you know, like they just gave it this completely new life. Mm. Um, what Terry Wogan is looking at is continental Europe kind of responding and, and it obviously responds in different ways. Um, and what Moldova do or what Sweden do is often very different. And there's a lot of fun in it, but I think he celebrated it with fun and he, he interpreted it really well for a British audience. I loved what he did with it. And I think they, they're, the, the Eurovision uh, chiefs really feel like they've got this very special show and they don't want it seen it made fun of. Mm. Um, but I, I, think, I think all's fair and it just really comes down to the punter and what they want to make with it, you know. For me, I love the production values and the design, but I love the counterpoint, the collisions of taking the the, the heaviest girl in Serbia and getting her to represent you or a, or a bunch of 
kind of intellectually disabled punks from Finland mm. and put $25 million worth of production behind them. Like, no one else would do that. The Voice or X Factor would never get to there. And there's something that's really uh, exciting and uh, uh, sort of champion diversity about that that I really admire. Yeah. Australia's involvement's differed a little bit over the past three years, hasn't it? Um, so explain exactly what we're doing this year. And is it... Is it like full competition? Yes. So we've been invited to participate as a full competitor. Mm -hmm. So we were competing last year, but we got a wild card into the grand final, um, which meant that we didn't knock anybody out on the way through the grand final, mm -hmm. and, and that was accepted. You've got to understand that there's numerous um, voices at Eurovision that go, why is it, why is it going to Australia? In fact, which you can understand. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So, we we have so this time we actually have to come through a semi final. There's wow. 19 uh, different countries in the semi final, and 10 go through to the grand final. So that's all I'm really working on at the moment. Is <laughs> <laughs> getting through that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Dummy M seems like a great great competitor. Um, perhaps hasn't shown. I mean, if you'd seen her, it was the X Factor, wasn't yeah. it, that she won? Yeah. Um, it looked like she might have been destined for stardom, but mm. she's been a little bit quiet by then. I'm not sure if she maybe hasn't had the right material. or. But um, does she have that sort of passion to, to be, a, be a, a major performer, do you think? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the fascinating thing about Dami, for me, is what you saw in the X Factor is what you get. Like, she's a very truthful person. She's quite vulnerable in her own way because she's so honest. Mm. And most most performers really develop a, a kind of a skin of what they're going to kind of let you see. And I think with Dami that she's she's so intelligent and she's so honest that she'll just say the first thing that really comes to her mind. And, you know, in, in when she did X Factor, I remember her saying... Well, I'll just see if I get through, and if I don't, it doesn't matter. I've got a nice husband. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that is so mm. sweet. Mm. And what do you know? People just went to her. You know, mm. like their hearts went out to her because they could really believe in her. Um, she's a real person. She learned to sing based around pop music. She learned to speak English based around pop music. I think she was quite a talented classical musician. And she grew up in Logan Valley. So she arrived from South Korea at age nine. Grew up in Logan Valley. And it was songs like Kylie Minogue songs that, that kind of connected it into English. And I find that just, you know, it's kind of uh, awe-inspiring, really. It's really mm. exciting that she's on that stage now. I think the Europeans will really like her because she's a real person. She has incredible talent. I think we've chosen a song for her that has an almost see a like counterpoint so it's it's quite quiet and then it just goes really loud um and yeah there's incredible power in her voice and real emotion uh so I, i'm fascinated just to see what europe make of her yeah and i think that so long as we can present her um honestly and so that they can i'm trying to or we're trying as a team to position her so that Europe can come to her and kind of want to like her. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, um, so we've gone to the most ridiculous lengths to do that. <laughs> the, um, I mean, you, you're, I'm sure you're very much part of the reason that, 
that Eurovision wants to engage with Australia. But I'm guessing the um, uh, Michael Abede and maybe Dennis Handlin, both both at the heads of their own companies, have been quite hands-on and, and trying to help make this work too. Oh, absolutely. Um, Mike Abede has been this great champion from the start and uh, all his team. Now, the... The, the SBS boss, I'm sorry. Yeah, so yes. SBS CEO is Mike, and managing director is Mike Ebed. And uh, he came to Denmark when Jessica uh, was on, and we did, we pretty much did the deal together for the next year. Mm-hmm. And now, this year when we were there, we began to talk about Eurovision Asia and just see if, if it was something that Eurovision would be interested that we could build a bridge to them. For, for the show to an Asian audience. So and so it's it's a really developing friendship and, mm-hmm. and alliance that we have with the Eurovision uh, heads. They're a really impressive uh, group of people. They're, they're, they've all... The, the guy that runs Eurovision is a former drummer from Norway. Um, there's a very small office of people that run Eurovision, but all the key producers from each of the different networks are all passionate and they're all very, very clever TV makers. And so it's a really vibrant management and it's a, it's a great brand. Mm-hmm. There's a guy there called Sid Tabaka who's about 30 who used to run a website that was a Eurovision website mm-hmm. and he was so good that they ended like up... Like a fan site? A fan site. Yep, okay. They ended up bringing him into the <laughs> management team because yep. he's just a brilliant organiser. Mm-hmm. But they've enjoyed our passion for it and the way Australians love to compete and they've connected with us. And it's something that SBS has made a real tent peg in the ground each year. You know, it's a, it's a big kind of foundational project for them. And they've been... It's, I'm sure they have so many other things that they have to do as, as TV managers. But I think for them this is just... A really exciting project to, to grow, yeah. And it's been a great partnership uh, doing that. Yeah. Is your you mentioned Eurovision is a relatively small team? I'm guessing you don't uh, take over a hell of a lot of people either. Tell, tell us about no, the, no, the presence it, you guys have. There. It's it's pretty contained. It's um, our 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 blink team of four or five people, which are producer, I'm director, Julia and Sam as commentators and an online person. There's uh, a publicity uh, person from SBS. And this year, because we're negotiating the Asian rights, uh, either Mike or Helen, uh, uh, Helen Kelly, who's head of content, will we'll go over as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so uh, that's, that's pretty much the core team. There's an editor, uh, there's um, uh, some... And then there's a team back here who are taking the material live and then turning it around, adding all the stuff that we've shot backstage. And we've also got to get Julia into, or Sam into live OBs for things like the project or the SBS News uh, or for the feed. So there's a constant kind of hum. Once you get there, it's kind of an 18 hour day, you know. (laughs) But I wish you could, at some point, we should see if we can get you there in future because to watch the rehearsals building. And there's so much just down to the three-minute performance. That's what Guy found fascinating. Mm. People, And there's a crossover between the media and the fan base. So anybody, it's like a magnet for people with 
with iPhones that can just ask interviews. But mm. guy was in a sauna in the, <laughs> in the hotel and someone started asking questions on an iPhone. You know, it was oh. like the moment he stepped out of his door, it was on. Mm. Mm. How long do you spend, how long before you set up there? I mean, will you be there three, four weeks? How long, how far out have you got to be? The, the interesting thing about Eurovision, and I think the reason why it's so successful is that they absolutely rehearse the bejesus out of it. Like the, we start rehearsals the week after next. So I'm there from the 1st of May. Dami's there from the 2nd of May. And is that three weeks out? Yeah, two, three, weeks, two out, weeks out. Two weeks out. And tomorrow we'll receive our first, what they call, stage rehearsal. Mm -hmm. So they'll have a stand in Dami and they'll be showing all the material that we'll be doing. Yeah. Uh, we've gone with uh, exciting new gauze that we're uh, using as part of our um, performance that you can throw images onto. A very similar look to what Lady Gaga used in that uh, Bowie, uh, the recent Bowie yep, yep. Uh, show that she did. Not done in the same way, but the same technology. So we're really interested to see how that'll look and, and to sort of work out exactly what time his choreography will be. So you have to go through about seven or eight rehearsals, but they're public rehearsals. Mm -hmm. So the moment that you step on stage you notice that the betting odds begin to change. You know, right. at the moment we're sitting third in the betting. Right. Wow. Um, and I'm sure the moment they see what we're doing, you know, they, they kind of make a, a adjustments according to the first rehearsal that we did with Guy. We went from second down to fifth. Right. Then we went back up to third. And then we had no idea what would happen and who would vote for Guy. But I think fifth was an incredible result. Are they allowed to watch? They wouldn't be allowed to film, I guess, would they, the rehearsals? They actually film the rehearsals. Really? Yeah, so it's it's like growing up in public. Yeah. You know, normally yeah. the public doesn't see that mm. side of it. Mm. And some of the performers, to me, it looks like the Russian uh, performer has been doing that song in a wind tunnel for the last six months. <laughs> and we don't quite take it that... Yes. Um, we haven't got the sort of resources to do that. Sure. But... Um, you mentioned Dennis Hanlon earlier, yeah, and I, yeah. I should say that um, on one side has been uh, Mike Ebed at SBS, and on the other side, uh, from the first, um, I, I went to see Dennis, who's like the godfather of Australian recording industry, and kind of went, oh, godfather, you know, what? Well, blah, 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 we're going to do this. Uh, would you? It's like the new Countdown, you know, and he was very involved in Countdown, and I was a junior on, on that show. I sort of grew up in an entertainment department full of people like Michael Shrimpton. We're going to do this. Would you get into it? And he he gave uh, us the help with getting Jessica over there. And the next year, when I asked, oh, could we take Guy? And we had a meeting with Guy and he said, what if I come last? <laughs> and, and Dennis looked across at me and he said... If he comes last, Paul, <laughs> you get a horse's head in the bed. <laughs> so there's a there's a sense of enjoyment and camaraderie about it. Yeah. Um, at the same token, a lot of the other networks, a lot of the other industries, like recording companies, um, Universal uh, gave us a, a performer for Junior Eurovision. Uh, called uh, Bella. You might have noticed that, but she had a Delta Goodrum song. Okay. So they really went out of their way to help us kind of present uh, an artist to Europe. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I'm sure that we'll work with Universal in the future. Or, I mean, when we were thinking about which artists to go with this year, we wrote to all the record companies and said, who's around, who could possibly do it? Developed a long list and then gradually worked down to Dharma. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and Dennis has worked for a long time, I think, as the ARIA chairman. So That's right. he's obviously very passionate about his own artists, but he really does want to push the oh, whole absolutely. industry as well That's, that's at, right. at the same time. Just give us a little insight into Sam and Julia working with that, that team. Well, it, the, sorry, to, I'm, I'm not measuring my words. I'm just trying <laughs> to think of how best to describe it because they're very, very different people. Yeah. Julia is the fastest improvised talent fastest on her feet of anybody I've ever worked with but because she's so intelligent um, it takes something to sort of catch her and lead her to the next point she loves Sam's sense of humor and it's so lateral mm. the guy's sort of swallowed the you know uh, Rickles joke book really and he he always amuses her so we we work up with them where they watch the rehearsals and they watch them separately and the idea is that uh, they don't know what the other's going to say so that they get a real kick when something happens mm -hmm. that they can feed off. And um, Sam, if he says something like, they can't be rude about the performers, mm. but mm. Sam will say something like, sometimes, Julia, three minutes can be an awful long time <laughs> in your life. And, and she'll feed off that. Yeah. And so it's a case of trying to watch where they're going with each rehearsal and what they think and trying to lead them to particular things and then wait for the kind of uh, collision of it, you know, because sure. that's where a lot of the comedy comes from. Um, and they're great to work with. Uh, Sam, it's been interesting just coming in at the start of his career, really, his TV career, mm. uh, in 2009. With Even before that, I did a show called ADBC with him where we chose him as the host, uh, 2008. And just watching his career blossom has been really good fun. And so for us, Eurovision's like this really good thing each year that we do together. And it's a great time to catch up and just, and it's, it's hectic, uh, but it's a really exciting thing. And Julia's like the super fan. And Sam is the guy that um, arrived, at, he was on the way to the Brownlow and he took a wrong turn, you know. That's, <laughs> <laughs> that's the idea of it. Yeah, yeah, and Sam, or well, both of their careers have taken off. They've yeah. both got so many projects on yeah, the go. Yeah. Sam's a big shot in Melbourne Breakfast Radio yeah. now, you know. Yeah. Um, the 10 show of Working Dogs yeah. going gangbusters, you yeah. know. So it's... It's, it's great it's, to see. It couldn't yeah. happen to a nicer guy. Yeah. And the same with Julia. I think that Julia's got a very special take on the world. And I, I, I think when you see her interview people on... Um, uh, her show on the ABC home delivery. on Home Delivery yeah. or you see her um, on SBS mm. with Rockwiz she just has yeah. a great ability to not be the classic kind of cookie cutter female yeah. presenter like the thing she's just brought an intelligence and a passion and a um, a humour but also a reality to, there's a complexity to her that's really interesting. So it's great to have her in the Australian media space. I yeah. think. Do you mind if I ask where you'll be sitting this year during the final? Because fans of uh, Eurovision might have noticed you a fair bit in, in the frame last year because you were sitting with that Aussie camp, weren't you? And that, they shot the guy a lot last year. Yeah, look, um, the people at Eurovision said that I'd turned into a slut. Uh, <laughs> but um, 
we'd, we'd had such a ride to get to that point mm. and I was sitting in the green room with Guy and it was, I'd never experienced such a fun night in my life yeah. and unfortunately I got a little bit carried away with it. <laughs> um, but I think that was more your belligerent Australian on holiday yeah, yeah. kind of vibe. I will try and contain myself a little more <laughs> this year. Uh, but um, I'd also, I'd just finished this ACDC uh, Easy Beats Albert's pr production mm. and it'd been a big one to do. So Eurovision was letting off a bit of steam, but I have promised to them that I won't be on camera quite as much this year. They're not making a horror movie after <laughs> all. Mate, we loved your enthusiasm. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. Look, I'll finish this part of the Eurovision chat before we move on to some other things just just you mentioned the asia project before um if that comes off presumably australia could be a, a fully blown regular uh contestant there without having to ask any favors right that's right i i think the idea is that when you think about it the um eurovision is the longest running song competition for television in the world and to introduce it to the biggest music market in the world makes perfect sense mm. but there's also this great sense from Northern Asia of their aesthetic. It's so different than European mm. aesthetic. And I've just done uh, a series of meetings through uh, Korea mm. and China and Japan, just, just meeting people and trying to tell them why this should be the Pan-Asian uh, production. There's many ideas for Pan-Asian contests, I think. And, but there's something about the format and the production values of Eurovision that they're really interested by. The funny thing, I was in a, uh, a Chinese TV studio and I was pitching Eurovision and saying, it's the biggest music show in the world. And, you know, and they sort of tittered. They said, you, you must come to our show tonight and we'll, you know, come, come to this production that we're going to do. And I went along and uh, they had artists from all over China, you know, like, Mongolian throat singers mm -hmm. and like a Björk from Shanghai and they were it's a great singer from Taiwan. Mm -hmm. There's so much diversity within China. Mm -hmm. um, and the president leaned over and via an interpreter said, this is going out live to 400 million people. <laughs> okay, now now I really understand the market. You know, yeah. there's just a huge marketplace there. Often people are watching from their phones. Mm -hmm. So it mm -hmm. would be a case of trying to find uh, a style that would work for that. It's like Eurovision for a new audience. Yeah. yeah. Um, but when you're in Seoul, it feels, it feels, it reminds me of Dublin mm. in that it's a place where people are so proud of their music and their heritage. Mm. And the South Koreans are so into music. Like it's in every, yeah. in every shop. K-pop is just king over there. And both, that's one thing that the Chinese and Japanese really connect on is their love of Korean pop music. Yeah, I, did. So I think uh, people love the idea of K-pop versus J-pop yeah. versus Oz-pop yeah, versus yeah. maybe the Kiwis are involved. Yeah. Kiwi pop. Yeah, know, that's right. That'd be an incredible, uh, yeah. incredible thing. So long as we beat the Kiwis. <laughs> <laughs> we want to beat them all, mate. Um, yeah, let's quickly talk about some of your other things. You mentioned uh, Blood and Thunder, The Sound of the Alberts. Wow, what a, what a great series oh, that, that was last year. It was a... It was a great piece of TV. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to do it and to be invited into the Alberts and Young families. Yeah. Uh, I had this um, fascinating uh, correspondence uh, via uh, the Alberts with George Young, who's m my great hero in music. Uh, George was the guitarist and co-songwriter with Harry Vander and the mm -hmm. Easy Beats. 
And I, I so wanted to put the young brothers together back in Scotland where they'd come from. And I suggested maybe we could set you guys up at a Glasgow Rangers game and the camera could just wander across the crowd and find Angus and Malcolm and George, you know. Mm. And, and I got this email back via um, an intermediary because George is quite reclusive saying, if I bring my boots, maybe I could get a game. <laughs> <laughs> Which I took to mean no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah. I, I, was in, I was in a hotel in London um, to uh, talk to the BBC about it and they ended up running uh, the show and it did really okay. well on, yeah. on the BBC. But it was funny that um, George Young just walked into the hotel and stood beside me and pressed uh, the elevator doors and I said, hello, George. And... and <laughs> And it's a funny feeling to be researching someone's life yeah. for a long, uh, for years, basically, yeah. and then for them to stand beside you. And he's a really charming man. He, he, and he looked wonderful. He, he, he looked like an Italian on holiday, you know, like he, he looked um, sensational. And he, so he chatted to me for ages about the project and he said yeah. that his daughter had loved it and that yeah. it made him, her feel better about him. Yes. And in that respect, he really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that's it's one of the sort of um, regrets a lot of people have that they don't get sort of to, to connect with those people a bit more that had such an important you know role to play in the history of, of Aussie music. But it's um, and that's one of the trademarks of all your work that it's you're doing a good job, I think, preserving a lot of con- contemporary Australian history that otherwise might just sort of disappear. Yeah, look, they were so important to me. Um, their music, Albert's music, as a kid, really. Mm it just gave you this sense of Australia just being this kick-ass place. Mm. And mm. they also were able just to go to the heart of that sort of bogan uh, uh, passion yeah. that Australians have. Yes. They really nailed that sound. You mm. know, that was their sound. Mm. So for me, uh, it was a real delight to be able to to go there. I had this funny thing because uh, ACDC were playing Coachella and they said, um, oh, year, right? yeah. Yeah, yeah, if you can be here, yeah. Angus will do an interview with you. Yeah. And uh, so we had him for 45 minutes and he he was, he was seems to me like quite a shy person, mm. but really funny. Mm. I, I didn't, I'd never met him before, but just a really good... interview was nearly ever given. Yeah, maybe, <laughs> maybe, but he was so dry mm. and so funny. Mm. And he was saying that George still regards him as like a little kid. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, possibly the only guy worth hundreds of millions that's ever treated like that. Mm, mm. Any thoughts about Axl Rose on singing with the band? Look, I'm intrigued, <laughs> a little scared, um, you know, just because it means so much to me. Mm. So I'm, I, I was never a huge Gunners fan, but mm. I don't know whether it's just to finish the tour yeah. or whether it's a long-term thing, but... It's certainly intriguing, but he's got better ears than I have. He, yeah. He'll know better that it'll work sure, on yeah. I, I love their commitment to the brand anyway, which mm. that shows they, they oh. don't want to disappoint people. They want oh. to keep it going Absolutely. as long as they can, it seems. Um, let me ask you this. Are you a, are you a fan of any of the bios, the, the dramatised history of a, like the In Excess or the, um, the Molly series? What, what did you make of those? Oh, look, I, to tell you the truth, I didn't see either of them. Oh, really? Uh, I... I feel but any that, reason because you, you just no. Look, I, I initially, I initially um, had an idea for the Molly uh, uh-huh. biopic because having worked with him, he's a larger than life character, yeah. and so I, I initiated that with 
ABC. Right. And it didn't end up flying, and it it was interesting to see that Channel 7 took it with Mushroom. And from all reports, it was a very good series, mm. and that Samuel Johnson was brilliant. Mm. So I didn't see the NXS one, and I also heard really good things about that. But it's it sort of... It feels to me that with Long Way to the Top, we were able to find this strand of stories that that gathered a lot of steam in Australian culture. And then with Spicks and Specs, which was also one of my shows, mm. I, I feel mm. good that that it's opened these veins of storytelling. Mm. And I, I, I don't feel responsible for that. Yeah. But I feel like it just lit a bit of a spark. Yeah. Um, and I feel very grateful that mm. I've been allowed to do that. Yeah sort of makes my next question a little bit redundant, but there's Sorry. been talk that people would like to dramatise the ACDC story, and you'd think there'd be a real appetite amongst people for that, but they, the producers always balk because they just can't get the rights, or they just know they'll probably never get the music rights. Um, do you think that's essential for, for dramatising someone's story, to, to have the original music? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it's either real or it's not real. Mm. Um, I did see one Beatles documentary that didn't have the Beatles music, but they got Sonic Youth to do the Beatles. <laughs> and like a version. Yeah. And it was a rockin' documentary. It was so good. Like, yeah. I, it just was fascinating just to listen to how they dealt with that problem. Mm-hmm. But I think that for Angus, he sees, as I understand it, what he said to me was that ACDC is a living, breathing band that still writes music and is still alive. So... Mm-hmm. He doesn't see the need to, to kind of tell it like it's an historical project. Right, okay. I think the Stones are a little bit more open to that kind of... They sort of celebrate their past just as much mm. as they... But they haven't written a decent song for a lot of years, whereas mm. that's quite different. ACDC yeah. have. Yeah. Um, Black Ice is still played mm. in our house. My teenage mm. son plays that regularly. Yeah. Uh, so I, I respect how he feels about that. I think we've been... Um, I'm aware that people have wanted to tell the Easy Beats and the Steve mm. Wright story mm. and, and then maybe carry it across to, to ACDC, but I'd be surprised if that happened before the band called it a day. Yeah. Have you read any of the books on um, Aussie rock, either you know, people's own autobiographies or some of the biographies of the different bands? Oh, most of them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, and... There's always a few details hmm. in each of them that's yeah. fascinating, but what you have to do, I think, is you need to connect with the subject on what the frame of the story is going to be, what the heart of it is, and grow it out from there. Hmm. And for us, what we agreed on with Blood and Thunder was that it would be the story of these two families that interconnected and formed this bond over music. So everything within the story had to kind of come out ripple outwards from that core and that's what the BBC loved about it was that it was a different take on music documentary and they asked me could you do that with Prince (laughs) could you do a Prince documentary like that so and numerous other people um, so did you say no? well I don't know that it's that easy to just ask Prince the question he he was here not long ago and he was brilliant I Mm. saw did you com- yeah. It was sensational. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was like being in the company of a modern-day Mozart. Mm. He was so fluid. Mm. And apparently 
he wants to do that show now because his father was this brilliant pianist and he passed away and he never felt that he could sort of show that side of himself as a kind of a public face but he's just an, like an incredible guitarist and great yeah. bass player and mm. everything else but now just to hear him play piano, it's like he, maybe he was in a way creatively liberated to do yeah. that, but it was phenomenal. And it changed every night. Um, uh, I know that the night I went there uh, to the opera house, it was like a full-on love set, you know, <laughs> love songs. And the next night was like a New Orleans song. Mm. It was like a left-hand night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. he had a mean left hand. Wow. There's a, just quickly on this too, because I'm just interested in my own personal life. Um, there's a lot of books that have touched on different parts of the Alberts of the ACDC books, which have sort of interested me. Any favourites there? I mean, Clinton Walker's done one, Mary Murray Engelhart, uh, Jesse, is it Jesse Fink did yeah. the, the, um, the Brothers? Yeah. And there's been a bunch of, uh, of UK biographies. Do any favourites there or anybody do it? Yeah, oh, look, I, I liked. Um, I, when we were doing Long Way to the Top, Clinton mm. Walker was involved That's right, yeah. in that and he brought a lot of insight into the way that worked and he had quite a... Um, uh, he and Alberts didn't agree on the, 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 pro, the approach that he took okay. and the Bond story, yeah. but he had the balls to be able to tell it in his own way. Mm. Um, they were good enough to work with us with Long Way to the Top with Clinton involved in it as well, like mm-hmm. they were open-minded enough okay. to do that. Uh, there's some some great stuff in. There's a Mick Wall book from the UK. Right, yeah, yeah. He, he worked on this recent series. Okay. Um, Murray Engelhart's book had some really good insights, and people like Michael Browning uh, have got this great stuff mm. in Dog Eat Dog. But at the end of the day, you have to decide what you almost have to make a partnership with the people that you're working with and tell the story outwards from there and so a lot of that detail that you'd love to get in you just can't it's like Mm. trying to push a doona into a scotch bottle Mm. you you can't take the whole thing it's got a Mm. it's got a form Mm. and you've got to be honest and respect the form that you've built and and make that as powerful as you can yeah I, I learned a lot about ACDC but a lot of there must be a skill that takes time because there's a and you've got to step back from being a fan too oh exactly yeah. I mean but you've got to you've got to be a fan and you've got to know what insight pa- and passions fans are going to connect with mm. and how you're going to hold teenagers there yeah. it's not just 50 year old fans mm. like me it's it's <laughs> it's like how you're actually going to grow a, a broad audience mm. of how women are going to be interested, how, you know, you're just trying to find a line with it. That, And it was the same with Bombora, the yeah. surfing history and the yeah. car, the Whit- Whitlam series and Brilliant Creatures with Howard Jacobson. You're, you're trying to find a line that you can, of story that the audience will follow you with, you know, and you'll get as many people on as you can. Sure. Howard would say something like, um, Paul, I want to say that the the... The words and the prose that they came up with was kangaroo coco. And I said, oh, look, you can say that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the audience will understand it. Mm. it, it my brother-in-law won't connect with kangaroo coco. I want to see it. Oh, well, I can't promise you it's going to be in. You know, and you, you're constantly making those 
you're trying things yeah. and then in the editing it really tells you what you can and can't do what mm. the film tells you what it is very quickly and yeah. then you've got to be true to that and and foster it grow it yeah, it's, it you, is fascinating. I love it. Yeah. Are you as engaged in the post-production as you oh, are yeah. in the production? Sadly, yeah. yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah sadly, yes, um, because you write a treatment, you do the interviews, and you're looking for the things that you want. So I know I have to ask you at, at Media Week this particular point that's going to shine a light on something else. Um, so, but when you get to the edit suite, when you look at, you've got the archive, you've got the interview, and you've got your story, and you've got to work those three things in together. So, roughly, I spend a couple of hours a day in the edit suite. I let the bomb off, <laughs> and then the editors put it back together, and then it starts again the next day. Yeah. But we've all been working together for twenty years, and we sort of know each other, and I know when to respond when they they say look at this, we've just found this great bit of archive or oh. check this out against these words that you wrote. Have yeah. a look at the way this works. We've looked for a kind of an irreverent counterpoint sort of style in storytelling that isn't too serious or worthy. And as a team, that's really worked out well. Yeah. All right, look, two things to end on. I'll need two-minute uh, answers off you, mate, so can't go for too long on this. Um, what's up coming up next for you? I've seen you've got a, a project with Matt Preston on the go. What can you tell us about that? We've we met Matt a few years ago, and we've been dying to work together. And I mean, for him domestically, Channel Ten and MasterChef is his home. Um, so what we've done is developed an international series, and it's it's the story of it's called Eat Here with Matt Preston. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that um, if you sit in any great restaurant, you should be able to taste what's on your plate and know exactly where you are. So that's the premise of the series. And we've we've gone to some of the most incredible cooks. People, when, when you think about cooking, in the 90s, international cuisine was led by the French and they decided who got the stars or who got the hats, what luxurious ingredients they had to eat. And, you know, they decided what was cool and what wasn't. Now there's a breed of chefs that are growing up in places like Sao Paulo where they're taking ingredients from the Amazon and putting them on plates so that when you eat it, a salad, it anaesthetises your mouth for 30 seconds before it comes back to life with flavour. Or for dessert, they'll serve a huge boulant on a piece of pineapple mm. and it tastes like lemongrass. Mm. So it's Matt going to these places and finding these people. There's one, the best restaurant in the UK is uh, run by a guy called Sat Baines. So he's the number one chef. It's in Nottingham, which is a city known for shoes and nothing else. It's it's it looks like the opening titles of the office. There. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's on the River Trent. It's it's not pretty, but his food and he's taken the the classic in, um, uh, staple uh, English food like ham and eggs, and he's turned it into something that's quite incredible. Okay. So it's basically using Matt's favourite restaurants around the world and showing why they're special and how the their food tastes like where they are 
Does it have a broadcast yet? No, we just took it to MIP and it got great response. So we're in discussions with a couple of different networks internationally. Yeah, yeah. Well, wonderful. And just finally, Paul, look at the changing dynamics of this business with the the growth of SVOD, uh, on-demand viewing really central to a lot of people's experience with video now. Is that changing the business model at all much for you guys or is it? Yeah, look, I think it's easier to disappear in the market. We did a... A film last year on Priscilla uh, with Jungle Boys on the 20th anniversary of Priscilla. We got Hugh Go Weaving, uh, Guy Pearce, Terence Stamp presented it, and it seemed to just disappear mm. in in a very crowded marketplace. It was a great film. I was really proud of it. Uh, it was nominated uh, for an actor, but it just it just went. And it occurred to me from now on, I'm just going to do big things. Mm. I want to do headland projects, and I want to just See if we can just rise a little bit. You, you have to be quite ambitious, I think, and just try and, and nail big projects and people can kind of see a bit of a lightning, a, a bit of a firework display. That's that's yeah. my take on what to do in this Good market. decision, I think, because I look at the daily ratings that we write about at Media Week and you, you just feel for some producers yeah. when you see what obviously a lot of hard work's gone into some of these shows that yeah, really don't engage with a big audience because they just sort of push through this endless flow of, of content, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. And I had this interesting thing a couple of weeks ago. I've got a 13-year-old daughter and she came out of her room with her television uh, monitor hmm. and she kind of nervously handed it to me <laughs> and said, I don't need this anymore. <laughs> and as, as a TV maker, I sort of went, oh! <laughs> but... What she was basically saying was, I just interpret uh, information and entertainment a completely different mm. way now. Mm. Um, and it was a real wake-up call for me just to go, right, so I've got to find a way into that machine where you're going to get a kick out of it. Yeah. Eurovision yeah. is certainly one of those. Yeah. But it's trying to find other ways that you'll, you'll grab people because um, attention spans are really diminished. Mm. Yeah, look, I was I was grasping with that exact thing, talking to Optus this week about their their content plans, and and I'm like an old media guy trying to understand, and they they're just talking a different world. So it's it's really coming to grips with with oh, what audiences want. Absolutely, and and as a producer, I mean, we sold nearly a million DVDs of Long Way to the Top, right. uh, and now if we sell fifty thousand DVDs. Mm. We think we've done very well. So it just really shows you at the moment that whole uh, commercial aspect of content has completely changed with catch-up and and iView. I think consumers are a bit confused and they're kind of waiting for a new model to kind of land. And in the middle, they're in between a number of different models, Netflix, uh, catch-up. They buy some DVDs, you know, but it's... It's a quite confused space at the moment. Sure. Look, Paul, that's great. Look, uh, thanks for talking to us. Thanks for the time. Pleasure. Good luck at Eurovision. Thank you. Go Aussie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, I hope you're watching and you have to get out there. We'll have to get you there at some point. Go, okay, mate. Cheers. Thank you.